Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. Beloved, if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to turn to 2 Samuel 17 and 18. We'll be covering those two chapters this evening in our study of the life of David. But this evening we'll be reading portions of chapter 18 as part of our scripture reading this evening. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will go also go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth ten thousand of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And the peop- all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. And the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth while, that, while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. And then moving on to verse 14. And Joab took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a great heap of stones, and all Israel fled, every one to his own home. And then moving to verse 24. Now David was sitting between the two gates. 
And the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king, and the king said, If he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gate and said, See, another man is running alone. The king said, He also brings news. And then moving on to verse 31. And behold, the Cushite came. And the Cushite said, Good news for my lord, the king. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, it is, well, is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for the evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Let's pray together. Oh, Father God, how we thank you for your living word your word which changes our hearts and helps us to see anew the wonder of your grace to us through Christ. For your word tells us about our Lord Jesus, and we pray, Lord, that you would be glorified this evening as your word goes forth, and that our hearts would be encouraged by your grace that we have in the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, as we pick up in our study of the life of David, we see how in chapter 17 and 18, Absalom's conspiracy advances as he seeks to destroy his father and usurp the throne. In chapter 15 and 16, Absalom craftfully wins the hearts of the people. He wins the hearts of the people to himself, and he turns them against his father David. And so David and his household and his loyal followers are forced to leave Jerusalem in haste and to go into exile into the wilderness while Absalom enters Jerusalem and takes over the throne. And what happens in chapter 17 and 18 is instructive and illustrative of a glorious biblical truth. For we see in these two chapters how the Lord uses the free actions of people to accomplish his redemptive purposes. We get a glimmer in these chapters of how history unfolds under the Lord's sovereignty and how his plan of redemption is accomplished through the interplay between human choices and his superintending those human actions. 
so that his divinely ordained purposes and plans come to fruition despite opposition. And even though David's reign is under attack, David must prevail. David must prevail, for through his descendant would come the promised Savior. So his other son, Absalom, must fail in his attempt to wipe out David and his reign. And nothing, nothing, nothing can detract or usurp God's plan of redemption. And as we know, that plan of redemption was first revealed in Genesis 3.15, after Adam and Eve fell into sin. And after death entered into the world, the Lord covenanted that there would come one from the seed of a woman who would crush Satan's head, who would defeat evil and death, but who would suffer in doing so. And in Genesis 12, 15, and 17, more of that plan of redemption was revealed in the Lord's promise to Abraham that Abraham would be the father of a great nation and that through his lineage all the nations of the world would be blessed because through Abraham would come the promised Messiah. And then after the nation of Israel was established, the Lord further revealed in 2 Samuel 7 that the promised deliverer would come through King David's lineage, in particular through the line of his son Solomon, And this descendant of Solomon would establish an eternal, everlasting kingdom. And yet in every step of the way, in every step of the way, the evil one tried to thwart the Lord's plan of redemption. And in these chapters, it's no different. We see this great cosmic battle being waged through the choices and the heart desires of people surrounding David. So in chapter 17, what do we see? We see Absalom full of bloodlust and passionate for power, intent on having David killed. And if he had succeeded, oh, if Absalom had succeeded, he wouldn't have just stopped with David But in his thirst for power, we can safely assume that he would have wiped out all rivals to the throne, all of David's sons, including Solomon, from whose line would come the promised Messiah. After all, it was an Absalom's character. All we need to do is look back to chapter 13, after Absalom had 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 his half-brother killed. What did the people assume after Ammon had died? Well, they assumed that Absalom had all of David's other sons killed at the same party where he entrapped Ammon. So Absalom was certainly thought to be capable capable of wiping out any opposition to the throne. And yet, despite Absalom's desire to kill David, which would thwart God's redemptive purposes, we see through the actions of others how the Lord protected David and preserved him 
because the Lord's plan of redemption can never be thwarted. And we see in chapter 17, chapter 17 opens up with Absalom seeking the counsel of the traitor Ahithophel. In verses 1 and 3, he counsels Absalom, basically saying, Absalom, here's the winning ticket. Here's what you need to do. Keep it simple, keep it small, and keep yourself out of it. There'll be no blood on your hands and there's no sweat for you. I will go and take 12,000 men with me. And we will hunt David down and dispatch of him quickly and cleanly. And all of Israel then will follow you. All we need to do is just take one man's life. And what was Absalom's initial response to Ahithophel's counsel? Well, yes, that makes a lot of sense. And it did. It was a clean strategy that most likely would have worked because Ahithophel read David's situation correctly. That David was weary and he wasn't organized and he could be easily overtaken in the panic of leaving Jerusalem. And if Absalom had taken Ahithophel's advice, it would have been the end of the story, wouldn't it? It would have been the end of David's life and reign, and the Lord's redemptive purposes would have been thwarted. But it doesn't end there. No, Absalom asks for Hushai's counsel. And in doing so, we see an example of the mystery between the Lord's sovereignty and human agency. Absalom isn't satisfied with Ahithophel's counsel, and in freely choosing to ask for Hushai's advice, he fulfills the Lord's plan to protect David and move forward his providential redemptive plan for all of history. So what happens? After Absalom asks for Hushai's opinion, he responds in verse 7 by saying, This time, the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Wow. Can you have just imagined the scene when he said that? What it must have been like when Hushai said that? Well, there must have been an audible gasp rising through the court. Because Ahithophel was like E.F. Hutton. And when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. According to chapter 16, verse 23, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as one as if one consulted the word of God. So to have Hushai go against his advice, well, that was a huge step. And Hushai counsels against Ahithophel's advice because his heart is loyal to David. And he must have known that if Ahithophel's counsel succeeded, all would be lost. David would be defeated. So Hushai acts out of his own desire to see David succeed. And so he offers different counsel. And Hushai, he's very crafty as well, isn't he? He plays Absalom's heart like a Stradivarius. Hushai appeals to two things. 
Absalom's fears and Absalom's pride. In regards to Absalom's fears, Hushai paints a picture of the David of old. He presents to Absalom an old, faded picture of the youthful David. Strong, valiant, fearless, and unbeatable. The David who lived in the caves and scaled the cliffs as he was hunted by Saul, but never was conquered by him. Hushai intentionally elicits the national brand of David and his invincible mighty men so as to strike fear in Absalom. And yet the irony is is that David wasn't quite that man anymore, was he? In fact, when it comes time for the battle to begin in chapter 18, David stays behind at the urging of his generals who don't want him to be in harm's way in a vulnerable position and be killed so he doesn't even engage in battle. And yet Hushai instills fear in Absalom. Oh, Absalom, Absalom, 12,000 men isn't enough. Oh, no, you need all of Israel to battle David and his mighty men and to take out your father. And then having played into Absalom's fears, he then goes on to play into Absalom's pride. He whispers to Absalom's heart, Oh, Absalom, Absalom, why should Ahithophel do all the work and get all the glory? So in verse 11, he says, Go ahead, Absalom, you go into battle in person. And he fills Absalom with visions of military grandeur and glory, saying that all of Israel will get behind him, and together they will all tear down a city wall, if need be, in order to win the day. And Hushai is so smooth. That's a great speech that spurs Absalom to visions of self-glory and feeds his ego also. Hushai is like a fisherman. He throws out the bait, appealing to Absalom's pride, and hooks his heart and reels him right in. Hushai catches a big one. Absalom falls for it, hook, line, and sinker. And so Absalom changes his mind. And not only Absalom, but Hushai reels in all the men of Israel to commit to his counsel. And in doing so, Hushai is the answer to David's prayer in chapter 15, verse 31, where David prays, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And what does Hushai's crafty counsel do? But to buy time for his friend David to organize an army in time for the final showdown. So in this one account, we see the mystery between the interplay of the Lord's sovereignty and people's free agency. How the Lord providentially superintends the very real choices that people make in order to accomplish his redemptive purposes. We see in these verses the outworking of Proverbs 16.5. 
that the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And in this passage, we also see lived out Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. And, of course, it's very clear in chapter 17, verse 14, which says, For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel. Why? So that the Lord might bring harm against Absalom. And the Lord used Hushai to do it, who appealed to Absalom's pride and passion to sway his heart. And in doing so, Hushai is instrumental in bringing about the Lord's divine purposes of protecting David and advancing his redemptive plan for the world. And if we were to read through the rest of chapter 17, we would see other instances where the Lord protects David providentially through the personal choices of people. In the Lord's providence, David gets a little help from his friends, to paraphrase the Beatles. The priests Zadok and Abiathar remain loyal to David, as well as their sons Ahimaaz and Jonathan, who act as secret messengers carrying court intelligence to David's ears. And then the Lord's protection and provision are seen through the kindness of Shobi of the Ammonites in verses 27 through 29, who supplies David and the remnant with food and with wine, And Shobi didn't have to do that. But he wanted to return the kindness that David had showed him in sparing his life after David conquered uh, Rabbah, the capital of Ammon. So that one good turn deserves another. We also see the Lord's providential protection through the bravery of a nameless woman in verses 18 through 20 who hides Jonathan and Ahimezaz in a well. Now, what if she hadn't been there? What if she wasn't loyal to the true king? What would have happened then? So again, we see how people's personal free choices connect with the Lord's providence to accomplish his redemptive purposes. And if those accounts didn't make the point clear enough, we see the Lord's providential hand in the battle itself in chapter 18. David's friends happen to come across Absalom just after he gets caught in the crook of a limb in the battle. Verse 9, and Absalom happened, and Absalom happened to meet the servants of David Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. Now, why was Absalom riding a a mule? Well, most likely he was riding David's royal mule to try to signal to all the people that he was king. But that very animal that was supposed to lead him right into the victorious battle led him into a thicket where he got his head caught in the crook of a limb, and then the mule took off, leaving him hanging on this this 
is just dripping with irony. The very thing that Absalom prided himself on was the very thing that led to his demise. 2 Samuel 14 describes Absalom as handsome. He's tall, with long, beautiful, flowing hair. Well, Absalom was right out of central casting in terms of a king and regal looks. But due to his height, or as some commentators believe, due to his hair, which may have gotten tangled up in the branches, he got caught up in the branches and he was defenseless. So there's an irony here that the very thing that made him look the part of a king was the very thing that aided in his downfall as a false king. And then so the men could strike him dead as he hung there and then fell to his death. Pride goes before a fall, literally. And then the usurper Absalom gets his just desserts through Joab, who chooses to disregard the king's order. That was Joab's choice. To disregard the king's order, and to, which was to spare Absalom. And so he meets out justice against him. And there is an irony here that the false king who built for himself a monument out of rock so that future generations would remember him is then buried under a pile of rocks, cursed, beaten, defeated, and an ignoble death. And this historic account is a depiction of Psalm 2 in living technicolor. Psalm 2, which was our call to worship. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And what does the Lord say? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision and then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So throughout chapter 17 and 18, we see how people's personal choices fall under God's providence so as to accomplish his plan of redemption. There was this cosmic battle going on in these two chapters. The forces of evil were poised to try and halt the coming of the promised Messiah by destroying David, but nothing, nothing, nothing could halt plan God's plan of redemption. And beloved, that is true as well today. So how can we connect these truths to our own day? But the Lord doesn't change, does he? And so he is still orchestrating history to accomplish his eternal purposes. Just as the sovereign Lord superintended the interests and actions of people to secure his redemptive purposes in David's life to bring about Christ's first advent... 
So the Lord is at work orchestrating events using the free choices of people to move history towards Christ's second coming. And David and those supporting him, well, they didn't know how the Lord was using their choices or even the evil choices of wicked men, turning those evil choices on their head to accomplish the Lord's good purposes. And likewise, we don't know how he might be using the choices and actions in our lives to accomplish his redemptive purposes in us and in the lives of others around us, through us. But, beloved, we know this, that the Lord is at work. And we know the promises of his word, that, of Romans 8.28, that the Lord is working all things. The Lord is working all things for our good and his glory. So how does this affect our perspective this week? in the day-to-day grind as we go about our work and interact with our families and our friends and our co-workers. To know that the Lord is superintending our actions and our decisions, using them for his glory and for his redemptive purposes. When we consider that, then even the mundane moments of life can be filled with the weight of eternal glory as we live under his sovereign reign and we seek to be a witness to him. How might it affect how you talk to your coworkers, to the person in the cubicle next to you or in the office next to you? How might it affect how you talk to your fellow students or to your neighbor or to your unbelieving family member to know that God is superintending our actions for his eternal purposes. Well, it certainly gives us confidence in being a witness for him, knowing that he is sovereign, doesn't it? And because he is sovereign, and we know that he has planned for people to come to faith in him, we can be then bold and confident in witnessing to people because he is so sovereign and he will bring salvation for those who he has ordained from eternity past to be his. And he just might be using us to do it. I was reminded this week about this very truth while getting my hair cut. When I told my hairstylist that, I'm a, that I was a pastor, she said to me that, oh, well, I'm a Roman Catholic. And then she said, you know, I just don't get it. I run into people all the time who don't believe in God. They're atheists. Now, how can you be an atheist? All you have to do is look at the world and you see that there's a design to it, that there must be a creator. So how can you say there is no God? And then she said to me almost in a whisper, you know what I think? I think God chooses people. In other words, that's why people believe. And I said to her, you're starting to sound like a Presbyterian. But my hairstylist spoke a better word than she realized, reminding me that the Lord 
is sovereign. And in his sovereign power, he does the work of redeeming people. It's not based on my skill or persuasiveness. No, it is the Lord who does the saving work through my actions, through my obedience, through my faithfulness. So why do I need to fear being a witness for him? All I need to do is to be faithful, to be a faithful witness, and allow him to do the work. So as you go about your week this week, How does this truth encourage you? How does it challenge you to know that the Lord sovereignly superintends our actions to bring about his eternal purposes? Does it not bring you some measure of comfort in your affliction? In your struggles and trials to know that the Lord in his sovereignty may be using your circumstances in some way for his eternal purposes. Oh, beloved, we have been so blessed, have we not? We have been so blessed in receiving the grace of his gospel. At the end of chapter 18... David wished that he could have died in the place of his wicked son, whose death was completely just for his betrayal against the Lord's anointed king. But David wished that he could have spared his son by his own death, but he couldn't die for the sins of his son. But beloved... We can rejoice tonight that we have a king who has done just that. We have such a savior, David's greater son, who has died in our place. For we were like Absalom. We betrayed our king and our creator. We betrayed him and rejected him. And we tried to usurp his rightful authority over our lives as our king and by our thoughts and our words and our deeds. And we would have stood guilty as charged under his righteous judgment. And we would have been doomed for all eternity, banished from the light of his everlasting kingdom. But what did the Lord do for us? Oh, the Lord, out of his grace alone, King Jesus did for us what sinful King David could not do for Absalom. He died in our place as our substitute and experienced the full judgment that we deserved for our betrayal against him. And it was all, all out of his grace. He willingly went to the cross to suffer for us even though he was despised and rejected by others. Like his father David, he knew what it was to be betrayed by a close friend, to have someone sell him out for personal gain. Jesus had his own Ahithophel and Judas, and both Ahithophel and Judas hung themselves after their betrayal. And yet even though Judas, Jesus was betrayed and denied by those closest to him, his eyes were fixed upon the cross. And on that cross, all the Old Testament prophecies regarding the suffering Messiah were consummated. Isaiah 53, that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Brothers and sisters, we have been so wonderfully blessed, so wondrously blessed that in the course of history, the Lord, out of his grace, planned to spare us from all of our sin before all eternity, and not because of anything in us, but simply out of his grace and love for us. And just as he protected David and thwarted Absalom's plan through the actions of others, so the Lord continues to orchestrate human actions to bring about his redemptive purposes. So the question is, do we see each day as an opportunity in which he is using us in some way to be a witness for him? to others who he has ordained to bless with the same grace that we have received through Christ. Let's pray. O gracious Heavenly Father, how we thank you for your wondrous grace that you did not leave us in your sin, but that you have orchestrated, you orchestrated all history and time to bring forth your very own precious son, for him to live a perfect life so that he could be a perfect sacrifice for us, for all of our sins, and that he was willingly, willingly went to the cross to die and to suffer the wrath that we deserved instead. So, Father, we pray that those truths would so grip our heart that we would never tire of the gospel and that we would see how you superintend our lives to bring us to that point of salvation and how you are working now to bring others to salvation and that you might be using us in the process, even in small ways, by acts of kindness, by planting seeds, So we pray, Lord, that you would use us this week in a very special way, that we would be light, your light, shining to a dark world. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m., To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.